I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Layla Elarian. Yes, hi. <laughs> Journalist and filmmaker with Al Jazeera English. Joining us uh, from just outside of Washington, D.C. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about, uh, I swear, I didn't do it. I am a murderer. I promise. The RCMP charges a podcast star with not being a terrorist. Also, why it might be wise to bring back the word nincompoop. An Edmonton radio host goes with the wrong put down. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you in part by Maxine betteridge Mose, Vicky Tran, Marcia Shack, Spencer Smith, Joshua Ralph, Daniel Kay, and Miles. Hey Canada Land, my name is Miles. I live in Georgetown, Ontario, and I teach secondary math and geography. My brother actually got me into the Canada Lands podcast because like many others, I was tired of going to the same exact news outlets to get the same exact story from the same perspective. So I really appreciate Canada Lands interviewing skills and independent approach. I still use comments quite often for my senior geography classes, especially the season on the crude, the oil in Canada. Keep up the good work, guys. Layla, we're going to begin by talking about the new developments, I suppose, with this blockbuster New York Times podcast, Caliphate. 
30 million people apparently have heard Caliphate. Uh, for those of you who haven't, this was a kind of a, um, I, I guess you'd call it like a prestige New York Times 10 episode cinematic journalistic deep dive by Rukmini Kalamaki. And how to describe the series? Basically, Rukmini, she documents being in Iraq in the aftermath of ISIS reign and, and collecting thousands of pages of documents in, into like garbage bags and, and using them as the basis for this exclusive inside peek at how the Islamic State functioned. And her really, her central character, if there's one kind of star voice besides her own in this podcast, it was a Canadian guy, Sharuz Chaudhry. 25-year-old from Burlington, who comes on the show and claims to be, for, for sort of hard-to-understand reasons, exposing his involvement that he traveled to Syria and joined ISIS. And he admits to a grisly murder, which is maybe the most memorable thing graphically depicted in this show. I stabbed him. The blood was just, it was warm. And it sprayed everywhere. And the guy cried, was crying and screaming. He did not die after the first time. The second time or so, he probably just flunched over. That was... How hard is it to put a knife into somebody? It's hard. I had to stab him multiple times. And then we put him up on a cross. And I had to leave the dagger in his heart. And Leila, from your perspective in the States, I'm not sure if you caught the Canadian side of this, but uh, when the show hit and was a smash, it caused a bit of a political firestorm here in Canada. This individual is speaking freely to the media. The government has got to know where he is. And if the prime minister would come out and say returning ISIS terrorists should be prosecuted, I know I'd feel a whole lot better. I have full faith in the RCMP, in CSIS, and in our agencies that they will get the evidence that we need to lay charges and convict these individuals. Fair enough, they, they can't talk about an open investigation, uh, but Canadians have a right to feel safe and they have a right to know the process. They may not have the right to know all of the fine details because there's something happening, but they absolutely have the right to know what the process is. To give a little bit more context on the Canadian impacts, Candace Bergen uh, called out really the Trudeau government in parliament and said, how is it that this animal, this monster is is walking free? Did you happen to catch any of that? I started reading more about that after this controversy, the latest update of Caliphate, which is that it turns out her primary source actually, according to Canadian authorities, actually made up the whole story that he was a fake. So I started kind of looking into what were the repercussions of this podcast, uh, getting so many, you know, ears um, and listens. And it turns out that it sounds like, you know, there was a big political storm that basically the podcast shut down effectively the conversation over repatriation, uh, even in the case of a five-year-old orphan girl named Amira, whose parents, uh, I guess, took her to um, the land that uh, was governed by IS and her entire family was killed in an airstrike. Um, her Canadian family members are trying to bring her back to Canada, and apparently even that case hasn't moved anywhere. And it seems like um, this was especially picked up by the opposition and kind of put Trudeau um, on the defensive, and he seems to have completely backpedaled, and uh, nobody has been repatriated. That whole conversation, the whole debate was effectively shut down by it. So I think it just shows us that there are massive consequences to what I consider to be wholly irresponsible journalism. 
Rukmini, she says that she caught up with him and got his confession on tape at a moment where he felt that he had slipped through the cracks. And he was sort of at um, the height of his uh, expressiveness and candor because he felt like he'd kind of gotten away with it and was feeling free to talk about it. She has stood by her story and her defense is that whether he's telling the truth or not is a central tension of the podcast, which I think is, is debatable. What do you feel was wholly irresponsible about the New York Times reporting here? I think it starts from the beginning, which is how did Rukmini Kalamaki find this guy? I started listening to, to re-listening to the podcast, you know, before this interview, and it's pretty clear she heard about him through this organization called Memory. Memory is a research organization founded by former Israeli military officials and it's long-faced accusations of mistranslating items, cherry-picking sort of like incendiary content from the Arab and Muslim world to basically portray the region as being, you know, violent, hateful, anti-Semitic, uh, take your pick. So I think memory itself is very controversial, and they, you know, have a history of making mistakes, mistranslations, and it seems like that's how Rukmini Kalamaki caught on to him. And I think, you know, listening to it again, there's so many red flags about this guy's credibility. Covering ISIS is extremely difficult and complicated. Journalists uh, who've covered that beat say that it's very difficult to substantiate what someone's telling you, and that it's very rare for anybody to actually confess uh, to violence and violent crimes. And I think in this case, the fact that he was so ready to meet her, the fact that he seemed so willing and open to confess things that, um, you know, it's, it's extremely unusual. And I don't buy this idea of narrative tension. In fact, in the first five episodes, she basically gives him a platform to tell his entire story, which turned out to possibly be fake. How he joined ISIS, how he grew up, the fact that he liked Star Wars, the fact that, you know, he traveled to Pakistan and then Turkey and Syria and sort of all the steps along the way and sort of his insight into how ISIS functioned. And in fact, she says at the very beginning of the podcast, what we're trying to understand is who they are, who they really are, who are we really fighting? We want to understand the ideology of ISIS. She didn't say, this is a story of an unreliable narrator and let's pick through it. And then, you know, secondly, if she did have such misgivings about whether or not uh, this person was telling the truth, there's a larger fundamental question of should this podcast have even been made? I would argue it absolutely should not have been made. This was very irresponsible. And I think the outcome uh, with, you know, this man being charged with a hoax is, is evidence of that. And I think the New York Times should retract it. I got to tell you, I'm still struggling to figure out what I think about all this and because we don't actually know yet and these charges are pending and it's not as if the RCMP is a disinterested player here. The RCMP was humiliated by the idea that this guy would be walking free and put on the spot. Why haven't you locked him up? And this case that they're trying to make against him is a strange case. They have to prove that he lied about being a terrorist, that he did so with a certain intent. I would not be surprised if he was cleared of these charges, but I want to focus on the journalism here. And I do think it's problematic I don't think that you can decry a journalist for like where they got their source. If she was able to find a great source, I don't really care where she found the guy. And I also have a problem with holding a journalist responsible for policy outcomes of their reporting, you know, unless the reporting was false, in which case I think there is some culpability. In this case, I'm sure you'll agree, journalists should be reporting on what happened with ISIS. 
right? Like, and it's a hard thing to report on. To me, it's not the fact that she used this source and she did, I think, endeavor to verify and they were able to basically place him at the, the Euphrates River. I think there's a, there's sort of a question of whether or not he actually performed this this execution that he describes or whether he was witness to these things. And Rukmini kind of hedges and says, well, he so many of the facts he's reporting are, are accurate to what we know about this, that she sort of wants to use him as sort of a narrative stand-in and leave open the question, maybe he's embellishing a little, maybe he isn't. I have problems with that, but I think as long as you're upfront, like if this had been a newspaper article presenting him in context from the start, I don't think that he's a source you can't use given how much she was able to verify. Do you think there's anything to that? Like, I feel like it's actually the medium and the format and this medium that I practice of, of narrative storytelling in a, in a long form podcast, that that might be why she ran into trouble with what might have worked a lot better as a factual news report. There's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I would say that, in fact, you should hold journalists accountable for the sources that they use. If the sources are unreliable and have a history of making mistakes, you need to exercise more discretion and you need to seek out different sources and, and a diversity of sources. And that's something I can get to later about um, other sort of what I would consider mistakes or missteps she's made in her journalism. But uh, let's talk about the geolocation. So what the New York Times says, and first of all, I should make very clear, I still believe that in the first five episodes, they don't express enough skepticism about his story. She does say in the first episode, could this guy be a fake? At one point, her producer, Andy Mills, says, what if this is just a case of catfishing, which, you know, if Canadian authorities are right, then it's, it is a case of catfishing. And in some ways, it's, it's a journalist's worst nightmare. But if it turns out that indeed this man never went to Syria, never joined ISIS, that he was playing out some sick fantasies to a journalist, then I don't think any of his testimony should be reported because it's not true. It's not based on anything. It's not based on reality. We're not actually gleaning any kind of information or insight or context. It's just a guy telling lies, catfishing. Absolutely. If he made the whole thing up, the whole thing falls apart and that's really bad. But I was under the impression that the geolocating kind of answers some aspect of that. What exactly did they get? If, if this man simply uploaded a photo or video onto his Instagram and that's what they used to geolocate him, that's not evidence that that's him. Malachi Brown, he's actually a very talented journalist. I respect his work very much. He's with a visual investigations team at the New York Times. Uh, somebody, another journalist tweeted at him a couple of days ago and said, did you see his face in that uh, video or photo that he geolocated? And he said, no, he hadn't. So I have a lot of questions about what exactly they used to geolocate him. Secondly, in that sixth episode, they say uh, she kind of enlists other colleagues to talk to their U.S. intelligence sources who told them, yes, we know this guy joined ISIS. He went to Syria. One of the pieces of evidence they point to is the U.S. no-fly list. There are literally toddlers on the U.S. no-fly list. There are tens of thousands of people on the U.S. no-fly list, including children who are obviously innocent, who are not terrorists. It's been well documented. There are problems with the U.S. no-fly list. So to use that as a piece of evidence, not to mention Shiroz Chaudhry is not exactly the most unique name in the world, so it could be someone else. All this to say that I think if U.S. reporting in the lead up to the Iraq war told us anything is that we shouldn't always take the word of U.S. intelligence agencies as 100% credible. We should also try to find other ways to substantiate what it is they're saying. In that same episode, she hires a 
fixer, or maybe it's their colleague in Pakistan, I'm not sure, but they work with a Pakistani journalist who tracks down the guy's father who says, no, my son never went to Syria. Well, you could argue that he's a, he's a parent trying to protect his child, or maybe he just didn't know. But that would give me pause. I would mm-hmm. then try to track down other family members. I would try to track down witnesses. I would really try to find out where this guy was at the time that he claimed he was uh, with ISIS. It's an interesting distinction between almost like a legal case and storytelling. If it were a legal case, well, as it is now, I suppose, but you know, Rugmini could say, there it is in episode one. I bring up the idea that maybe he's a fake in episode one. What more do you want from me? I, I'm, I'm giving the listener the information they need. Of course, as I think you correctly point out, the next five episodes are really credulous. And if really there's a good chance this guy is just a complete fraud, why are we spending episode after episode and sound design and cinematic, you know, recreations like a lot of credibility is handed? It's, it's I think, a bit of an after the fact twisting of things to say, oh, this is a whole series about whether or not this guy's a liar or not. I think that, like, this speaks to certain vulnerabilities in what is so powerful and evocative that we can get audiences to, you know, audiences who won't read more than three or four minutes of an article will listen to hours of one story if it's told in a cinematic and dramatic way and and pieced out with cliffhanger endings serialized week after week. The problem with that is that when you introduce the idea that somebody might be a killer in episode one and then you've got a smash hit, you know, until you actually resolve that, this person's like living under that cloud, you know, like the impacts of the popularity of the shows themselves have to be considered. It wouldn't surprise me if a former ISIS executioner who thought he got away with it would want to boast about that foolishly to a reporter. And then later when that becomes consequential, take it all back. That wouldn't surprise me, but the opposite wouldn't surprise me either. It doesn't surprise me that his father says, oh, no, he never went because a parent would have every reason to either protect their child or not want to believe that. Or maybe it never happened. I mean, this is why we kind of strive for a greater level of verification than maybe what Rukmini had in this case. Yes. And I think you can't disconnect the fact that, you know, it is hard to fact check overseas reporting. And I think the fact that a lot of this reporting was done in the Middle East, I would argue there's a double standard in the way that reporting from that region doesn't receive, I would say, the same type of scrutiny that reporting would normally receive. And I think you have certain practices that wouldn't simply wouldn't fly here in the U.S. covering stories here. And I think that her editors should have exercised more scrutiny and asked more questions. I think it would be instructive for us to look back at the statement, the apology that the New York Times released in 2004, uh, reviewing their coverage of the lead up to the Iraq war. And what they said was, we found a number, number of instances of coverage that was not as rigorous as it should have been. The question here is, was her reporting and her process not as rigorous as it should have been? And I would argue, depending on you know, the outcome of this case, but um, what we know so far, that yes, it wasn't. I can't help but uh, identify with her. I mean, you know, as we say, ISIS being so hard to to cover and, and finding firsthand accounts and nobody wants to admit culpability to have a source that seems like a dream source like this. I think that, you know, looking through it, there were certain areas where she was incredibly rigorous and thoughtful. But as we are increasingly engaging with journalism as a form of entertainment. And it's interesting, the New York Times, like they got a campaign out right now all about the kind of gold seal stamp of the New York Times. Their new slogan in this campaign is consider the source. 
you know, in many ways, it could be argued have earned it that, you know, in, in this age where you don't know, you can't trust news organizations, the Times has kind of peak credibility. And this was wrapped up as a prestige project. It won the Peabody Award. This will be a momentous thing if this thing falls apart. But I don't know that we're ever going to get that level of closure just because this RCMP case just seems like like a wild thing. In, like that's a whole story unto itself of proving that somebody lied about being an executioner. Where do you think this is going? It's definitely a bizarre case. I mean, I do think that, I think if they were able to prove that he did go to Syria, then they would have never hesitated to charge him with terrorism crimes, uh, just because Western governments don't really hesitate to take on those cases. Um, They're usually quite popular. You don't have a lot of pushback, obviously. Who would uh, push back on on a former ISIS member being charged? So you know, I think it'd be, it'll be interesting to see kind of how this case plays out. But um, I do think that there are very big questions about how this was put together. I think there's a lot of pressure on journalists to, you know, have very kind of entertaining, um, successful projects that reach a wide audience. I think Serial kind of set the bar several years ago. And Caliphate, I think, was trying to kind of uh, replicate that success. But I don't think we should compromise our journalistic standards, our ethics, um, the practices that that we have that help us earn the trust of of readers and listeners um, in the quest for, you know, popularity and entertainment. I do think the ISIS story uh, is very sensationalistic. I think it has all the elements that people kind of are drawn to when it comes to Middle East coverage. There's violence, there's rape, there's all sorts of you know, disturbing content. And I think that part of it, you can't really ignore. Have you been following uh, Rukmini Kalamaki's previous reporting on ISIS? I have been following her reporting on ISIS. And I do think it's a very difficult job. Um, I think there's no question this is a really brutal group that's committed horrific crimes. But I do feel that some of her coverage frames the group as if they were created on Mars and kind of dropped down to Earth. And there's an overwhelming focus on the group's ideology and religious beliefs and justifications, and very little around the overall context of the region in which they emerged, namely Iraq, where the U.S. invaded in 2003 and massively destabilized not just that country, but the entire region. So I think it's very difficult to tell that story and to truly understand that group without understanding and giving context to readers about the much bigger regional uh, geopolitical situation. I think what you're getting at there is not necessarily so much a Rukmini issue as much as a New York Times issue. There's an ideological approach to ISIS that's really not looking to explain necessarily the context that could create such a thing. I think they're satisfied with this is monstrous and, you know, we'll cover this to the extent of documenting the monstrosity, but we're not looking to humanize the people involved. I think it's, it's coming from a, you know, a mainstream perspective that is a little bit incurious. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even talking about necessarily humanizing them. Um, I do think we just need context about the fact that, you know, there are consequences to destabilizing a region. You know, statistically speaking, if you scale up the number of people who died in the Iraq war um, to the US, it would be between somewhere between 9 million and 19 million Americans dead. Um, At that point, anything that happens in the country wouldn't be about 
what is it about their culture, religion that that makes this situation crazy? It would be about what actually happened in that region. So I just think it really is very um, much out of context, and uh, it seeks to kind of excuse the role of the U.S. and and its allied partners and and destabilizing the region and kind of creating the forces that led to this. You know, Islam has been in in Iraq for centuries. There was no ISIS. It was only after 2003 when there was this horribly destructive war that this group came to exist. I I think we might be saying the same thing. An openness to the idea that uh, the U.S. had anything to do with, you know, that is a short line between people saying, oh, so you're going to blame us. It's America's fault that and and I think that's just something that uh, that the Times is really incurious about. I agree. And I think it is problematic that, you know, she really has no connection to the region. She doesn't speak the language. And yet she became an expert on this topic. I think when you look at the reporting of somebody like Anthony Shadid, who had roots in the region, who learned the language, um, he's the late New York Times reporter who covered the region, who died um, while covering the war in Syria from an allergic reaction. Um, I think you just see huge, stark differences. His work very much drew a very you know, diverse picture of the region, very rich, very much rooted in the voices of the people, the civilians. I think there's trends in her work that tend to have, like I said, an over-focus on ideology that I think swallows up everything else and is very limiting and doesn't give a full picture. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Layla, it's your first time with us. uh, And one thing we try to do for our listeners is uh, let them know about something in the news that might have otherwise slipped past them. Do you have something to duly note today? I do. It is an article in The Intercept that came out September 22nd 
Um, and the headline is, did the FBI downplay the far-right politics of Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock? It's been three years since that horrific mass shooting in Las Vegas. And this article by Daryl Johnson and Eric Lickblau looks at some of the right-wing uh, views held by Paddock uh, based on FBI documents in which they quote people who knew him, who say that he talked a lot about guns and taxes. Um, I just think it's really interesting to kind of get more information on what may have motivated him, uh, because the FBI has always said that they found no motive. And, you know, I think it also points out to kind of a difference in coverage when it comes to covering attacks carried out by Muslims and Middle Easterners versus um, white guys like Stephen Paddock. Duly noted. I would like to point out uh, a couple of stories, actually. Uh, CBC story in Joliet, Quebec, a mom named Joyce Echakwan, she posted a, a live video to Facebook. She streamed a video to Facebook Live from her hospital bed. And what it showed was um, healthcare workers swearing at her and insulting her. And this was posted to Facebook just hours before she died. She, she'd gone into the hospital with a stomach ache. She had pre-existing heart condition. And two days later, she was dead. But before she died, uh, she was demeaned and dehumanized by healthcare workers. And by the way, she is an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. And the other story I want to point out um, is from the other side of Canada, Squamish, B.C., kid who lived in a group home hanged himself and was discovered in that group home in a closet four days later. So I want to just duly note the coast to coast contempt and indifference and neglect towards indigenous people in Canada that, uh, that characterizes this week and pretty much any other week in this country. Duly noted. So Layla, joining us as you are from uh, near Washington, D.C., I'm sure you're up to date with all the latest dramatics in the uh, Edmonton, Alberta talk radio scene. Am I correct? Absolutely. You know, it's what I look up every morning. <laughs> let me uh, let me bring you up to speed with, uh, with something that's played out just this week. This has to do with the cancellation of Edmonton radio host Ryan Jesperson. Ryan Jesperson is like a talk show chat guy. He's an opinion guy. And he was on his show criticizing an Edmonton city councilor, guy who's likely going to run for mayor. Uh, his name's Mike Nickel. Nickel has been reprimanded by Edmonton's integrity commissioner for his, uh, his online posting. He is under investigation by the ethics commissioner, city hall for his online posts. There was a rape joke, uh, allegedly posted to his Facebook page, um, I'm told that it was posted there by his chief social media guy, a guy named Matthew Alltime. This is the backdrop for this segment on the Ryan Jesperson show, these offensive uh, social media postings from Mike Nickel and his team. And Jesperson goes on the air and he says this. Pay attention to his social media presence, right? He's got a couple chimpanzees running his social media And obviously, I think we can expect more of the same if and when he decides to throw his hat in the ring for mayor. And in response to that, uh, local city councilor Mike Nickel, um, he seized on on that insult. And he said to Jesperson, you know, how dare you? How dare you? You know, you can say what you want about me. But if you're going to come after our staff and call them chimpanzees, we have visible minorities on our staff, Mm. is what he says. And that really does seem like, oh, like that's that's bad. Whether or not Jesperson knew that 
or meant it as a racial slur in this atmosphere, if that's true, if he's got racialized employees on the social media teams, to call them chimpanzees is, you know, I think understandably not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike Nichol goes after his boss and says, like, what, what are you going to do about your host here to uh, 630 Ched, which is uh, owned by Chorus, the big, the big media company here? You better do something about this, this uh, supposedly racist attack. And they do. They wipe Ryan Jesperson off of their website after years of broadcasting and they fire him. And Layla, as I said, like in these kinds of issues, and we've had a bunch of them in Canada, and I know there, of course, have been many, many in newsrooms and media organizations in the States. I don't really care about the intentions. As I say, I care about the impact, like whether or not he's a racist in his heart, whether or not he intended that to be a racial slur. Or, or if he meant it in the other way, like, ah, what a bunch of baboons, though those jokers are over there. Mm-hmm. But that changes very quickly in a racialized context, right? So whether or not he intended that, if that was the harm caused, then I'm like, yeah, there should be consequences for him saying that. Mm-hmm. But as the facts come out, like, I, I'll believe, and I mean, I, I hope he's got um, people of color on his team, uh, the city councilor, but those comments were with specific reference to two people on Mike Nichols' social media team. And I happen to know that Matthew Altime, the guy who allegedly posted that rape joke, is very much a white guy. Mm-hmm. If there is some other person on Mike Nichols' social media team who is a person of color, that has not been demonstrated yet. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering and, and putting forth for your, uh, for your input is, like, is it possible here that what we actually have happening is there is an, an elected official who is kind of cynically using anti-racism as a tool to silence his critic on the radio? I think that's really possible. I think it's happened before. It's happening here in the U.S. I think that Ryan Jesperson probably should not have used that term. We do live in such a polarizing time now, and I think people getting canceled is a real phenomenon. But I also think the right never seems to cancel anyone when it comes to them actually making racist statements or rape jokes or any of that. And I do feel like sometimes the left or liberals kind of make these decisions to appease, you know, sort of reactive or right-wing forces without a due process, you know, a process that really looks into the allegations, evaluates them. This happened, I think, during the Me Too movement with Senator Al Franken. Yeah. Um, you know, they it later came out this big long form article by Jane Mayer that there were really huge questions about um, kind of the credibility of some of his accusers. But by then he was out. And uh, guess what? Now the Republicans have control and the rest is history. <laughs> but in any case, you know, I do think the right wing forces do have kind of a pattern of cynically using anti-racism for their purpose without actually ever themselves <laughs> condemning racism within their ranks. It's cynical, but it's also just really ugly. It's the sense of, um, the sense that this is such a witch hunt to begin with. We'll do the same lest you be uh, a bunch of hypocrites. You know, if, if that's what's playing out here, it's so gross. It's so cynical. And as you say, it's just like, it's not coming from people who give a shit in any other context. I agree. And I do wonder kind of what the radio station's explanation is for terminating him so quickly. Um, Was there a process? Uh, Was there an investigation? Was he interviewed? Or was it just a quick decision kind of for PR purposes? So I think we all agree that due process in general as a 
concept is a good thing, um, just to at least make sure that you have all your facts before you make a decision. Yeah, that's a good point. And I actually like, I'll say this uh, regardless of the case. I say this when people on the right feel that somebody has been canceled and they say, oh, look, the mob took to Twitter and they got this person canceled. And I'll say, well, no, they didn't get the person canceled. First of all, the person's actions had the consequence of getting them canceled, but no network has to deplatform a host, right? Like we live in a civil society where employers can look at the pressure that they're getting, where it's coming from, whether it's valid or not. They're the ones who actually cancel shows, cancel books, cancel speakers, and they're usually not canceled permanently. So I'll, I'll say if, if you're mad, you know, that, that Bill O'Reilly isn't on the air, go talk to his bosses at Fox. You know, they're the ones who took him off the air. People are, are absolutely within their rights to complain about Bill O'Reilly. It was his employer that made the decision. And I'll say that in this case too. I think that, uh, you know, from the perspective of Chorus, they just didn't like the heat, you know, and, and they can't, and, and if they can't tell the difference between a cynical manipulation of anti-racism and an actual act of racism that they are responsible for dealing with, then they deserve actual criticism for that. Uh, as opposed to just sort of running away and pretending that they never had this guy on the air. I don't know much about Jesperson, but I make a living by sharing my opinions uh, and, and and talking about things. And I think we're all learning how much more careful we have to be about the impacts of our language and how much racism is embedded in words or is associated with words that we may not even be aware of. And I think he's he's got to be responsible for his language and think about that. My opinion is that this is a chill. This is this is shutting up a critic. And by the way, when this city councilor, Mike Nichols, says, uh, you can come after me and criticize me, but don't criticize my staff, just speaking for like the media or for the public, we'll criticize whoever the hell we want. You know, when it comes to governments, elected leaders, and the people who represent them on social media, that's fair game. If you want to come out in public life and uh, work for a politician and get their ideas across, you might be criticized on the radio for that. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think you see here, even in the US, that, you know, you had, for example, Barry Weiss at the New York Times, who's this really controversial op ed page editor there who cries, you know, about academic freedom and freedom of speech and all these sorts of things. And I think it's very much a cynical use because, you know, her entire college career, she was trying to shut down academic freedom at Columbia University, where she was an undergrad, um, trying to get her Palestinian professor fired because he, she didn't like his views. So you do see this kind of hypocrisy quite a bit. And I think uh, when it's evident, it should be called out uh, because it's inconsistent. Layla Larry, and that is your Canada Land Shortcuts for the week. Thank you for joining me for the first time. Thank you for having me. Everybody, you can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Layla, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at, at Layla Alarian and watch our show on YouTube. It's called Al Jazeera English Fault Lines. Type that in. You'll see our show. It's a 25-minute documentary show focused on the U.S. and its role in the world. It's an excellent show. It's well worth your time. Go check it out. This episode of Shortcuts is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of Canada Land, please support us. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. 
This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.